Chapter 8, Part 2 of Kangaroo by D. H. Lawrence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Murphy, Richmond, Virginia. Next morning, when Summers had made the coffee, he and Harriet sat on the loggia at breakfast. It had rained in the night, and the sea was whitish, sluggish, with soft, furry waves that had no plunge. The last thin flush of foam behaved queerly, running along with a straight, swift splash, just as when a steel rope rips out of water, as a tug hauls suddenly, jerking up a white splash that runs along its length. "'What had William James so much to say about?' asked Harriet on the warpath. "'Why don't you have the strength of mind not to ask?' he replied. "'You know it's better you left it alone, that I'm not supposed to blab.' She gave him one fierce look, then went pale with anger. She was silent for some time. Then she burst out, "'Pah! As if I cared to know! What is all their revolution bosh to me? There have been revolutions enough, in my opinion, and each one more foolish than the last. And this will be the most foolish of the lot. And what have you got to do with revolutions, you petty and conceited creature? You and revolutions!' You're not big enough, not grateful enough to do anything real. I give you my energy and my life, and you want to put me aside as if I was a charwoman. Acknowledge me first, before you can be any good. With which she swallowed her coffee and rose from the table. He finished, too, and got up to carry in the cups and do the few chores that remained for his share. He always got up in the morning, made the fire, swept the room, and tidied roughly. Then he brought in coal and wood, made the breakfast, and did any little outdoor job. After breakfast, he helped to wash up and settled the fire. Then he considered himself free to his own devices. Harriet could see to the rest. His devices were not very many. He tried to write, that being his job. But usually, nowadays, when he tapped his unconscious, he found himself in a seethe of steady fury, general rage. He didn't hate anybody in particular, nor even any class or body of men. He loathed politicians and the well-bred darling young men of the well-to-do middle classes made his bile stir. But he didn't fret himself about them specially. The off-hand, self-assertive working people of Australia made him feel diabolic on their score sometimes. But, as a rule, the particulars were not in evidence— all the rocks were submerged, and his bile just swirled diabolically for no particular reason at all. He just felt generally diabolical, and tried merely to keep enough good sense not to turn his temper in any particular direction. "'You think that nothing but goodness and virtue and wonderfulness comes out of you,' was one of Harriet's accusations against him. "'You don't know how small and mean and ugly you are to other people.' "'Which means I am small and ugly and mean in her eyes,' he thought to himself." "'All because of this precious gratitude which I'm supposed to feel towards her, I suppose. "'Damn her and her gratitude. "'When she thwarts me and puts me in a temper, I don't feel anything but spite. "'Damn her impudent gratitude.' "'But Harriet was not going to be ignored. "'No, she was not. "'She was not going to sink herself to the level of a convenience. "'She didn't want protestations of gratitude or love. "'They only puzzled her and confused her but she wanted him inwardly to keep a connection with her. Silently, he must maintain the flow between him and her and safeguard it carefully. It is a thing which a man cannot do with his head. It isn't remembering. 
and it is a thing which a woman cannot explain or understand because it is quite irrational but it is one of the deepest realities in life when a man and woman truly come together when there is a marriage then an unconscious vital connection is established between them like a throbbing blood circuit a man may forget a woman entirely with his head and fling himself with energy and fervor into whatever job he is tackling and all is well all is good if he does not break that inner vital connection which is the mystery of marriage but let him once get out of unison out of conjunction let him inwardly break loose and come apart let him fall into that worst of male vices the vice of abstraction and mechanization and have a concert of working alone and of himself then he commits the breach he hurts the woman and he hurts himself though neither may know why the greatest hero that ever existed was heroic only whilst he kept the throbbing inner union with something god or fatherland or woman the most immediate is woman the wife but the most groveling wife worshippers are the foulest of traitors and renegades to the inner unison a man must strive onward but from the root of marriage marriage with god with wife with mankind like a tree that is rooted always growing and flowering away from its root so is a vitally active man but let him take some false direction and there is torture through the whole organism roots and all the woman suffers blindly from the man's mistaken direction and reacts blindly now in this revolution stunt and his insistence on male activity summers had upturned the root flow and harriet was a devil to him quite rightly for he knew that inside himself he was devilish she tried to keep her kindness and happiness but no it was false when the inner connection was betrayed so her silent rage accumulated and it was no good playing mental tricks of suppression with it as for him he was forced to recognize the devil in his own belly he just felt devilish while harriet went about trying to be fair and happy he realized that it was awful for him to be there as black inside as an ink bottle however he practiced being nice theoretically he was grateful to her and all that but nothing conjured away that bellyful of black devilishness with which he was unsente he really felt like a woman who was with child by a corrosive fiend in his lower man just journing and demoniacal no good pretending otherwise no good playing tricks of being nice seven thousand devils when he saw a motor-car parked in the waste lot next to coe and saw two women in twelve guinea black coats and skirts hobbling across the grass to the bungalow farther down perhaps wanting to hire it then the devil came and sat black and naked in his eyes they hobbled along the uneven place so commonly they looked so crassly common in spite of their tailor's bills so low in spite of their motor-car that the devil in him fairly lashed its tail like a cat and yet he knew they were probably just two nice kindly women as the world goes and truly even the devil in him did not want to do them any personal harm if they had fallen or gotten into difficulty he would have gone out at once to help them all he could and yet at the sight of their backs and their tailored costumes hobbling past the bushes the devil in him lashed its tail till he writhed so there you are or rather there was richard lovett summers he tried to square accounts with himself surely he said to himself 
I am not just merely a sort of human bomb, all black inside, waiting to explode I don't know when or how or where. That's what I seem like to myself nowadays. Yet surely it is not the only truth about me. When I feel at peace with myself, and, as it were, so quietly at the center of things, like last evening, for example, surely that is also me. Harriet seems fairly to detest me for having this nice feeling all to myself. Well, it wasn't my fault if I had it. I did have it. What does she want? She won't leave a fellow alone. I felt fairly beatific last evening. I felt I could swim Australia into a future, and that jazz was wonderful, and I was a sort of central angel. So now, I must admit I'm flabbergasted at finding my devil coiled up exultant like a black cat in my belly this morning, purring all the more loudly because of my goodness of last evening, and lashing his tail so venomously at the sight of the two women in the black costumes. Is this devil, after all, my god? Do I stand with the devil-devil worshippers, in spite of all my efforts and protestations? This morning I do, and I admit it. I can't help it. It is so, then let it be so. I shall change again, I know. I shall feel white again, and like a pearl, suave and quiet within the oyster of time. I shall feel again that, given but the answer, the black poisonous bud will burst into a lovely new unknown flower in me. The bud is deadly poison. The flower will be the flower of the tree of life. If Harriet let me alone and people like Jazz really believed in me. Because they have a right to believe in me when I'm at my best. Or perhaps he believes in me when I'm at my worst and Kangaroo likes me when I am good. Yet yeah, I don't really like Kangaroo. The devil in me fairly hates him. Him and everybody. Well, all right then. If I am finally a sort of human bomb, black inside and primed, I hope the hour and the place will come for my going off, for my exploding with the maximum amount of havoc. Some men have to be bombs to explode and make breaches in the walls that shut life in. Blind, havoc-working bombs, too. Then, so be it. That morning, as luck would have it, Summers read an article by A. Meston in an old Sydney Daily Telegraph headed, Earthquakes. Is Australia safe? Sleeping volcanoes. The fact that Australia so far has had no trouble with volcanoes or earthquakes and appears to be the most immune country in the world accounts for our entire indifference to the whole subject. But there are phases of this problem entitled to some serious consideration by those in whom the thinking and observant faculties are not altogether dormant, and who have not a calm, cool disregard of very ominous, inexorable facts. Australia is a very peaceful, reposeful area, with the serious volcanoes of New Zealand on one side, and the still more serious volcanoes of Java on the other. We live in a soft, flowery meadow between two jungles, a lion in one and a tiger in the other. But as neither animal has chased us or bitten us up to the present time, we go cobbling to sleep, quite satisfied they are harmless. Now the line of volcanic action on the east coast of Australia is very clearly defined, from the basalt of Illawarra north to the basalt within three miles of Cape York. The chief areas over all that distance are the Big Scrup on the Richmond River, the Darling Downs, and the Atherton Tableland behind Cairns. These are the largest basalt areas in Australia, 
the darling downs and atherton containing each about two million acres of basalt the one chiefly black and the other all red the other conspicuous areas are the red basalt isis and wungara scrubs and north of Afferton, the next basalt area is on the Mivor and Morgan rivers, 40 miles north of Cooktown. From there, I saw no basalt on the coast of the peninsula until somewhat surprised to find great piles of black basaltic stone, like artificial quarry heaps in the dense Seaforthia palm scrubs 10 miles west of Somerset. Volcanic Evidence here, then, is a clearly defined but very intermittent line of volcanic action along our entire east coast for over 2,000 miles. Yet today, there is not only not one active volcano on the whole of that area, but not even one clearly authentic dead one. There is nothing to show whence came the basalt of the Darling Downs, the Big Scrub, or the Atherton Tableland, unless, in the last case, the two deep freshwater lakes, Bahrain and Isham, the Barang and Zichum of the aboriginals represent the craters of the extinct volcanoes. Whence, then, came the basalt spread along a narrow line of our east coast for 2,000 miles, and all of it east of the dividing range? There is a lot of room for theories. When the late Captain Audley Coote was laying the cable from New Caledonia to Sandy Cape at the north end of Fraser Island, on the South Queensland coast, he passed a submerged mountain 6,000 feet in height and found a tremendous chasm, so deep that they could find no bottom and had to work the cable round the edge. When he reached the coast of Fraser Island, he got the same soundings as Cook and Flinders and the Admiralty Survey in the 60s, six to eight fathoms, but there came a break in the cable in after years, located in that six and eight fathom area, and they found the broken cable hanging over a submarine precipice of 800 feet. That I read in Captain Coote's own manuscript journal, and it was confirmed by Captain John McKay, the Brisbane harbor master, who assured me that an 800-feet chasm had suddenly formed there in the bottom of the ocean. On the coast of Japan, the ocean bottom sank in one place suddenly from four or five fathoms to 4,000 feet. The old Fraser Island aboriginals told me that the deep blue lake, two miles from the white cliffs, was once a level plateau, on which their fathers held fights and corroborees, and that it sank in one night. On the north Queensland coast, there is fairly shallow water from the seashore out to the edge of the barrier, and then the ocean goes down to depths up to two and three thousand feet. So if the sea were removed, you'd look down from the outer barrier into a tremendous valley with a wall of granite cliffs. When the town of Port Royal in Jamaica was destroyed by an earthquake on June 7, 1692, the houses all disappeared into an ocean chasm 300 feet in depth, and in the terrible earthquake at Lisbon, 1755, destroying 2,000 houses and 5,000 people, the wharves and piers and even the vessels lying beside them, disappeared into some tremendous gulf, leaving no trace whatever. It is a singular fact that the heights of the loftiest mountains correspond with the depths of the deepest seas, and that the 29,000 feet of Mount Everest is equal with what is known as the Tuscarora Deep, fathomed by the USA vessel Tuscarora. Islands that vanished 
From the days of Seneca, there are records of islands suddenly appearing before astonished mariners, and others disappearing suddenly before mariners equally astonished. In the dreadful volcanic explosion of Krakatoa in August 1883, one mountain peak was blown to pieces while others were thrown up from the ocean. The tidal wave created by Krakatoa destroyed 40,000 people, and the air wave from the concussion pulsated three times round the world. And Krakatoa and the Javanese volcanoes are only a short distance from the coast of Australia. Doubtless, many of the ships that have mysteriously disappeared, leaving no trace, have gone down in the vortex of a submarine earthquake, or a chasm created by a sudden shrinkage in the bottom of the ocean. From the facts above available, it is reasonable to believe that the present continent of Australia is only a portion of the original, and that in some remote period it extended hundreds or thousands of miles to the eastward, probably including Lord Howe and Norfolk Islands, and New Zealand, possibly New Caledonia. How came the ancient Cretaceous Ocean, which once covered all central Australia, from the Gulf to the Bight, to withdraw from the land, leaving nothing but marine fossils in the desert sandstone? Was the Cretaceous Ocean shallow all round this continent, and did it suddenly subside to fill some tremendous chasm caused by a sudden submarine shrinkage of the Earth's crust, followed by the inland sea, which naturally rushed out in the vacancy? What seems the only real danger to Australia lies not in the eruptions of some suddenly created new volcano or any ordinary earthquake, but in just such shrinkages in the sea bottom as occurred on the coast of Japan, off Fraser Island and many other localities, including Lisbon and Port Royal. If such a substance were to come under Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, or Brisbane, it might be of such a magnitude that the whole city would disappear into the gulf. We know nothing whatever of the awful forces at work beneath the crust of the earth, and nothing of the internal fires, or that awful subterranean abode where Shelley said, The old earthquake demon nurses her young ruin. The history of volcanoes and earthquakes is an appalling record of lost countless millions of lives and awful destruction. One Pekin earthquake destroyed 300,000 people, one in Naples 70,000, another at Naples 40,000, and we are not far from July 1902, when the volcano of Mount Pele in the island of Martinique wiped out the town of St. Pierre and 30,000 inhabitants. Still nearer is that 18th April 1906, when the San Francisco earthquake killed over a thousand people and did damage to the extent of 60 millions. And so far, in Australian history, we have not had an earthquake that would capsize a tumbler of hot punch. Why hot punch, thought Summers? Why not hot bitters or ice cream soda, which are much more austral and to the point? But he had read this almost thrilling bit of journalism with satisfaction. If the Mother Earth herself is so unstable, and upsets the apple cart without carrying a straw, why, what can a man say to himself, if he does happen to have a devil in his belly? And he looked at the ocean uneasily moving, and wondered when next it would thrust an angry shoulder out of the watery bed covering to give things a little jog. Or when his own devil would get a leg up into affairs.
End of chapter 8.